You know, in, in therapy land, in, uh, in therapy land, sometimes we use the symbol of the empty chair <laughs> to help people reflect on a different meaning of their communication. I don't know if any of you watched the, the RNC this year, but I think Clint may have been trying to be a psychologist or something. I don't know. Um, the reason why I have the chair here, though, for this session is to have a place to put my water. Okay, turn to the book of John, chapter 2. See if I can get this thing to work. Forget that slide, that is useless. Go to the piazza, that's important. I'll tell you that story real quick. This has nothing to do with the last session because we skipped too much information to connect to it. But part of investing in the we part, when you, when you know you're investing in the separateness and the individuals and bringing this rich partnership, is you wanna have some rituals around connecting. I began with that story about Jim Blau telling a very busy Scott and Lynn to, to have dinner together, to reconnect at 10 p.m. We've now in, uh, come across this idea of the piazza. When my wife was uh, doing uh, an internship what they call internship, which just means you need to be on site to take the course. You can't do it online. So she was on in the intern part of having to be on site for some of her Gonzaga courses in uh, communication and leadership. So they had it in uh, a town called Cayi, Italy, a tiny medieval Italian. You know, this, these Catholic universities, I have to say, they're connected, and uh, especially in Italy. And, and so that was a wonderful thing. So we were doing our Berlin coaching piece. We've been working as coaches in Berlin for a while, uh, visiting them occasionally and helping their leadership teams. So we went and did that work in Berlin right before she was going to do her, her two weeks in Cayi for one of her courses. So she went there alone while I continued to be a coach. And then at the end of her thing, I flew into Rome, uh, got a, a cheap rental car and drove all the way to Cayi and she introduced me to this way of life that the Italians have that I used to pathologize and think was lazy. <laughs> now I think it's a good thing. And, you know, everybody works hard all day. Some take a siesta, some don't, but they're working hard all day. And then at about 5 o'clock in the city square, the piazza, the whole town just shows up. And, and, what, and there's a wall on the church in the piazza where a lot of the young boys have been sitting, just kind of looking at the square. And at 5 o'clock, all the old men, the elders of the village, come in and kick the boys off the wall. <laughs> and all the old men sit there on the bench just looking at life at Nkayi to make sure everyone's behaving. And then there's little cafes, of course, built around the piazza. So everybody's coming and milling around and greeting and sitting down for a glass of wine or a cup of coffee or whatever. And I was kind of scratching my head. For, for five straight days at the end of this thing, I followed Lynn to the piazza at 5 o'clock. And the first day, you know, I sat down and, well, tell me, tell me about your day. Tell me about your class. What did the teacher say? What did you learn? What books did you read? What did you guys do? Really? What was the homework? Blah, 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 blah. You know, second day I was a little bit slower. The third day I was like, so what happened today? Mm-hmm. Okay then. By the fourth and fifth day, we didn't have to say much. Just go to the piazza, sit down, and shut up. And look around. 
and let your blood pressure come down and look into each other's eyes and just go. And Piazza is something now that we decided we're going to take that to America. So what, what, we, what we did is we, this is actually a picture of the Piazza. That's Piazza Navone in Rome. That's a bottle of champagne that Lynn drank. And I helped. And so now we're doing that in Seattle. At the end of the workday, usually more like 5.30, it's Americans. But at the end of the workday, 5.30 or 6 o'clock, rain or shine, and that's saying something in Seattle. We get on our gear if we need to and rain hats and we go out the front door and walk down the street 10 minutes to the Burt Gilman Trail and walk another 10 minutes all the way down to University Village, which is just this shopping area near the University of Washington. And we go to this little restaurant called Piatti's and we do that four days a week at the end of the day to talk about life in slow, deliberate, we-building terms. You don't have to do it like that. But find some piazzas in your life. Amen? Find some. Okay. Part two. The language of we. This is also when we were young and in Hong Kong and visiting outside north of Beijing, the Great Wall of China. Which is an interesting understatement. If you ever go to the Great Wall of China, you won't use a word like great. You'll say miraculous, stupendous, impossible, crazy. You won't say great. It's pretty awesome. But of course, in this land, in, in both Hong Kong, we were learning Cantonese. In mainland China, we were learning Mandarin. Our Mandarin's pretty poor. So if you're a Mandarin speaker in here today and you come up and start going, I'm not going to be able to say much more. But if you're Cantonese, I can crank. So if you're a Cantonese speaker, I can chit-chat with you. That'll be awesome. Until the 20 minutes are up. <laughs> Let's talk about the language of building the we. Communication. Is this, is this a little too loud? Do I need to get further away? Okay. Let's talk about this, this communication piece, about, about the nature of language for a second. Communication, language. One of the things that my program and Lynn's program had in common uh, is what academics will call a phenomenological understanding of reality, which means that the way that we see what's real gets captured in language. It gets captured in language. And so uh, we, as little children, we grow up learning languages, but we're defining things using words. And the words help capture something for us. We, we think of what a chair is as a little kid. Maybe when you get older and someone says chair, you think of a different kind of chair because you've gotten older and you have your favorite chair. Or when you're little and someone says car and you, and you learn the word car, it, it might be you know, some sort of sedan. But then as you get older and you found the car of your dreams, you're thinking Ford F-150, you know, something. And so phenomenology is about that the, these realities we have are getting caught up in language and that language captures meaning but also perpetuates meaning. I know that's deep stuff, but it, it, believe me, it's at work in your marriage, okay? And you might say, that's right. My marriage is a phenomenon, blah, 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 blah. There's phenomena going on in my marriage. But it's about how meaning shifts and moves and we always think it's so objective and that we mean the exact same things by the exact same words. 
Of course, any marriage fight will prove to you that we do not mean the exact same thing by the exact same words. And so we always think if we could just say the words more slowly for our spouse, or say them louder, or repeat them many times, that somehow we'll be amazingly understood. I remember when I went to um, one of our our coaching stints in Berlin, the brothers there took us out to to Wittenberg, which is not far outside Berlin. And, of course, that's really the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. That's where Martin Luther taught as a professor uh, and nailed his 95 theses on the door of the church, of the city. And uh, it it was a wonderful trip to go there. But I remembered, uh, I can't remember the word for hospital or clinic in German. Anybody a German speaker? What's clinic? Sorry? Krankenhaus. And the nurses are Krankenschwesters. Okay. The Cranking Sisters. That's a nurse. Krankenschwester. Okay, Krankenhaus. So I went, I went out and uh, I was looking. They have, you know, like any other town, there are signs for things. And I was looking at the church in Wittenberg and I, I kind of turned around. And there in the middle of the, the, uh, the square was a sign that said, Gesundheit Krankenhaus. And, of course, uh, Gesundheit just means what? To your health? Health? So it was health clinic. But to me, it was Gesundheit Krankenhaus. And I thought of it as being sort of a fun house for sneezing or... (laughs) Gesundheit. So, you know, language shifts depending on what you think you know. And and meaning shifts around until you kind of collaborate and clarify what you're talking about. So how we take the time to communicate really matters. And you didn't need me to tell you that. Every fighting couple knows it. But I think the reason why I bring this up as an introductory point is that great communication is not just about learning skills. It is about the humble awareness of what I've been saying to you, that meaning is not what we think it is, and nailing it down is not as easy as we thought it was. And that's a humbling piece when we come together as a married couple to kind of go, wow, I think I know what you're saying. Do, do I really know what you're saying? And, and I want to be understood. Am I, am I making myself understood? And I need to find out what that looks like. So there's a humility piece to this, I think, to seeing how complex communication can really be. So I want us to talk about some principles about this to take home with us. Number one, We are always communicating. We are always communicating. In the book of of John, chapter 2, in the book of John, chapter 2, in verses 1 through 5, I guess I've got it all quoted there, but we'll read it. (laughs) Gesundheit. Exactly. Salud. See, and, and you grew up English in a military family, and that salute means, it doesn't mean gesundheit, it means. Okay, for, uh, John chapter 2, of course, the, the wedding in Cana. Um, let's read from verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. All right, we can stop with that. We know what happened. We are always communicating. What what an amazing sequence where... Think about the meaning going on where, where... 
uh, if, if, you, if you didn't believe in greater meanings that are going on, how would Jesus have responded to Mary? They have no more wine. Maybe Jesus would have said, oh, really? They should have planned better. But he knew what she meant, and she was saying something different. But what did she mean, right? She was like, I need you to fix it now. You know, with your... And then Jesus, Jesus does the same thing. He, he doesn't say, I don't want to do miracles right now. He goes, why do you involve me? And what if Mary had said, what do, you, what do you mean by that? What do you mean, why do I involve you? Because you know how to do miracles, dummy. So see how they're communicating on this wild level? And then finally she communicates to him a third time without even talking to him. She goes to the servants. Do whatever he tells you. Goodbye. <laughs> We're always communicating. I think about me and Lynn. When, whenever I say to her, honey, we really need to. Do you know what that means? It means you need to. <laughs> it took me a long time to, to understand that. When I'm quiet at dinner, it means something. It means I didn't feel included. We figured that out. It took a while. In the morning, Lynn will say, we usually go to bed at different times. I'm not saying that's a good thing. A lot of times it's good to go to bed at the exact same time and read and other things. But <laughs> a lot of times I'm, I'm kind of the more workaholic and I'm doing more stuff and I come to bed a little later. She'll always ask me in the morning, what time did you go to bed? What time did you come to bed? And I'm getting better, but that, that's fairly recent. And so I'm always wanting to go, why would that matter? What? I didn't look at the, I don't look at clocks when I come to bed. Do you do that? Do you, do you like check in when you get into the bed and look at the clock and write it down tonight? I got... Questions like that throw me and frustrate me. And I finally figured out, she doesn't know this because this was one I figured out recently. She's not checking up on me, which is how I sort of interpret it. She was just looking for a way to reconnect from last night. That's it. She was, that was just her way of saying, well, I fell asleep here. And then it's just a curiosity for her. But to me, it feels like checking up. So we had to talk about this. We're always communicating, even sometimes when we say nothing. Our silence, our softness, our reticence, it's saying something. And so we want to be responsible for our lives with our spouses and ask the question humbly, what am I communicating to my spouse by what I say, by what I do not say? By the things that I do and the things that I do not do. They're communicating something. We're always communicating. Secondly, and I, I guess this is obvious, that's our dog, Kurt. We are always misunderstanding. We are always misunderstanding. I always think that Kurt will understand us, but he doesn't. I don't know what I had asked him, but he was just staring at me, and so I took that picture. He so badly wants to understand. But that's how he looks at you no matter what you say. So we are always misunderstanding. All right, we'll come back to that. Let's go back to misunderstanding. Cuter picture. Let's talk about this. 
We're always misunderstanding each other. Think about how the apostles were always misunderstanding Jesus. After all that time, after all those speeches, after all those D groups, after all that conferencing, and they're still going, what? We, we don't get it. Uh, you know, what do you, you will never die. What? You know, Jesus, Peter taking him aside to rebuke him. They were being like Kurt. Jesus is telling them stuff, and they're going, We're always misunderstanding. So I want to say to you that it is normal to use a great deal of energy to clarify and correct communication. It's really normal. And if you don't think it's normal, you get impatient and you start looking at the clock and then time is moving and then you don't, you don't understand each other and that causes people to get angry. Hey, it is normal that it takes time and energy to clarify and correct. This is why you can walk into a Christian bookstore and always see an explosion of books about communication. You would think by now that if communication were that obvious and we could learn a few skills, we would have stopped publishing these books like after the 60s or something. But they keep popping up. There's just a zillion of them. The five love languages, the seven love innuendos, the, the nine communication paradigms, you know... 20 years from now, there's going to be 50 more of them, you know, because it's really hard work, and it's an art, not a science, right? Whether you're from Mars or Venus, it's difficult work to clarify and correct. And remember I was saying earlier, Gottman's conclusion that 70% of our differences are irreconcilable? Wow. We're going to have some communication glitches. And so we must understand that for the rest of our married lives, don't be depressed, that building this beautiful partnership will include lots of misunderstanding and confusion and the correcting and the clarifying and the reconnecting. The kind of couples work that I do with people actually is all about how we reconnect more than how we fight. The fighting is, it's, it's a given. We're going to struggle. We're sinners. We're going to sin. We're going to fight. We're, gonna, we're limited. We're going to misunderstand. But it's really about, well, how do you reconnect? How do you do that? Because if we can do that, we can overcome anything. Amen? Okay, let's talk a little bit about Messages versus words. And so these are just some of the things that, that might be sort of, um, I guess, just principles of, of, of better communication. Messages versus words. We, we believe as a society that if we're careful with our words, that that is the key to communicating. And, and, and I will say that there's no question at some point the language has to be understood by both parties. Yes, we, we, can't, we can't just reconnect with each other with like eye movements you know we got to use words right we, we got to clarify I get that but but when we're in trouble and we don't know what's going on it's because the message is louder than the words the message is bigger than the words and so when you get caught in that frustrating place if we are we are why are we fighting like this why are we misunderstanding because something bigger than the words you're using is happening I want you to remember that. When things seem really big and it's confusing, they are really big. And the reason why it's confusing is you're probably using words that aren't really capturing how big it is, okay? Bigger things are happening than the words we're using when it seems that way. That's true. Why? Because there's an emotional truth that's speaking at that time. Let's talk about this. When it seems bigger than words, it is. Let's talk about emotional versus rational realities. I said earlier that we privilege in our country and in our society thinking over feeling instead of recognizing they're both parts of a rich life. We have to have an emotional life or we would be computers. 
It's pretty dull. Pretty dull. Uh, but we need the rationality to try to capture some things and get a hold of things and organize them a little bit, right? So we need both. We need our emotional life, our emotional truth, and also the rational truth. We need both. We talked a little bit about Spock versus McCoy. I had this happen to me one morning. Um, I came down. I'd have to do the recycles in our family, among other things. I clean the kitchen because Lynn's the chef. She's very good. I clean the kitchen. She does other things. I take out the recycles on Monday. Took some training for me to be able to do that. There were seasons of, honey, did you remember the recycles? Yes. Uh, get them up there. Was that the sound of the recycles? Maybe. But now I'm on it. Now I do recycles. But a couple of years ago, I'd forgotten to do them. And, or no, it wasn't that I forgot to do them. I mixed them. You know, you got to have the right bin for the right. You can't put, you can't put like pizza with glass. I know. Who, who, that's not clear. So she had been saying several times, you, you, you are mixing those, and then Ariel, Ariel and I have to separate them at the end, and it's, it's, it really is, puts a lot on us. Okay, okay, okay. So I came down one morning, fixed the coffee at 6 in the morning, and I'm, it's a cold day in Seattle, July sometime. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sitting at our little nook with my hot cup of coffee, just kind of steaming out the night, clearing my sinuses, and I was just... Mm, enjoying it. And Lynn came down. You, you didn't do the recycles. <laughs> so I said, it's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll get them up there. Yeah, but you didn't do them. <laughs> All right. I, I get that. I take that point. You know, you don't do them. You, you mix them up. And, and she was going on. And I, and I said, stop. This is coffee. Come have some. She got into the recycles. And then I, I finally, I was like, how dare you come down here at 6 o'clock in the morning when we could be having coffee and you're raking me over the coals over glass and paper. <laughs> well, I had just been thinking about this in one of my MFT classes. And so we, we both just, you know, she was standing up and I was sitting down. And stuff started to come to me, and I was thinking about these classes, and I, and I thought, the message is bigger than the words. So I thought, what's the message? And I took a guess, which is risky. <laughs> but sometimes you got to do it to open up the door. And I said, I said, is this about you feeling alone in the work of this house with me running off to school and so I'm really not here and that you must bear this burden by yourself and you cannot count on me to help you with it. Wow. 
And she got very teary and just kind of nodded. So I said, I am so sorry to leave you alone in it. That's, I never thought of it that way. And that's not the message I want to send. And, you know, we wound up reconnecting well. Just, just, I had to take a guess. But the message is bigger than the words a lot of times. The message that, that feels so powerful, yeah, it's something powerful. Try to figure out what that is, right? The message versus the words. And that'll help you. This can help with, with sometimes even with longer-term emotional stories that we have and not, not being afraid of those emotional stories, but trying to figure out what they are. I remember I was doing a, a mediation between a couple of churches in our, our movement, and uh, it was a group of leaders from both churches, brothers from both groups, trying to figure out each other. And one of the groups uh, was feeling like, we've been in association for a long time, you guys seem to be uncommitted to the mission, we're really concerned about that. We still believe in the mission to seek and save. And dun, 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 dun. the brothers in the other group were like, well, we appreciate your help, but you always look down on us and blah, blah. And they were getting into this big marriage fight is what I was watching, you know. And I remember sitting down with um, <clears throat> hearing the, the emotional story of the one side and the brothers were saying, you know, when we were really committed to the mission, our church blew up in 2003. It just, it just fell apart. We're lucky to even be here. So it's scary for us. I said, tell me more. It's, it's terrifying. We think that if we do it the way that we tried to do it before and we really go great guns, we're going to build with wood, hay, and straw, and the church is going to blow up again in 10 years. And you could just feel it coming from them. So I wound up directing a mediation where they could tell that emotional story to the other group. And when they could really tell the emotional story that was bigger than the words, the other guys could hear them. And so, so we got, it's kind of an interesting, there's a sort of an afternote to this because it, it didn't go as well as it could have because the first brothers were like, oh my goodness, I didn't know you felt that way and I'm so sorry. So they made a reconnection about that, which was great. What would have made it even better is if the other brothers could have gotten in touch with their own emotional story. Because later on when we were in a different place, I mentioned it to them. I said, you know, I wish you could have told them your story. And they were like, well, we didn't know we had a story. And I said, I think this is your story. Okay, tell us. I said, I think your story is you were scared that the mission would be lost forever, that it would disappear as a qualifying, as a characteristic of even your church, let alone their church. And they were like, that's true. That's how we feel. It was frightening. And so people are dealing with these emotional fright stories, and they don't even know it because they go to their head so fast and, well, we need to get organized about why we disagree. There are emotional stories that are informing these things, right? I hope this is helpful. Let's talk about how to work through that in a safe way. Okay, we did that. Yeah, how can we reason about emotion? Let's talk about creating safety for the partnership. Talk about safety for the partnership. Look in 1 John chapter 4. Again, a scripture I think we're well familiar with, but really, really useful to, to meditate on and, and keep at the forefront of communication. 1 John 4. Let's look at... Um, Boy, there's a lot we could read here. Let's just capture, let's say in verse 17. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love. 
But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Now, sometimes we'll look at this scripture through a purely behavioral lens. And what I mean by that is that we, we look for the behavior and we look at this scripture and we go, see, don't be afraid. Being afraid is not a great behavior. Don't be a fearful person. Be a confident person. Live in love, blah, blah, blah. That, that, that's one way to look at it. But I think one of the things I want us to see in this is something more than just behavior. He, John is trying to say here that people desperately need safety in their lives as Christians. Living under the old covenant and living under the law was to face judgment all the time. That is not a safe way to live one's life. Imagine if you're in a marriage where you're just judging each other all the time. That doesn't feel very safe. It feels like a fearful way to live. And it is this perfect love, the graceful love that casts out fear. We need graceful love in our marriages to take away the fear. And I want to talk about this creating of safety in communication. Here's some ways to do it. Number one, find the health in it. Find the health in it. When you're missing each other and struggling and fighting and, and having a hard time, Ask yourself, where's the health in this? We have a tendency, and, and there's a time and a place for this too, but we have a tendency as a culture to always look for the unhealth in it. Honey, you're being proud, unhealthy. Well, you're being stubborn, also unhealthy. And we look for the unhealth. I'm not saying ignore that. But a lot of times we don't look for the health. Where's the health in this response? Why is she screaming at me? Why is he so furious with me? Where's the health in it is a question to be asked. Now, I don't mean like it's healthy to scream or get angry, but what is informing that? What's provoking that? Something that might seem healthy to that person. Maybe they feel like they've got to defend themselves. Maybe they feel in danger. Maybe they're scared they're going to lose you, and so they are reaching for you in a way that, that, that doesn't connect for you. Where's the health in it? My wife put it this way. This, this is a quote from Lynn. Only wounded and hungry animals attack. So when you're feeling attacked by your spouse, I wonder where they're wounded. And I wonder what they hunger for that they're scared they can't get. That sense of hunger and deprivation can be a powerful thing that informs fighting. Okay? So ask yourself that. Now, hey, let's be realistic. When you're in the middle of a, you know, you're attacking me. I'm putting up shields. It's not easy to think like this. This is something you have to pray about, right? But here's something to be thinking about to create safety for each other is ask, where's the health in this? Are they doing something just to try to stay alive here? What, what are they afraid of? Where's the health in it? I hope that makes sense. Uh, I describe to married couples sometimes that when people have been attacking each other a long time, both people get into a tank, you know, the, uh, a military tank. You know, and tanks have a lot of armor, and then they've got these big guns on the front. And so they're both in the tank. And, and one spouse is like, you need to apologize. <laughs> and that means come out of the tank. And, and you know, you want to come out of the tank. You don't want to just stay in the tank. But, but, but you're like, no, no, I have to stay in the tank. You're dangerous. I'm not dangerous. I'm just in a tank. Yeah, but your tank has a big gun on it. <laughs> and it's aimed at my tank. Well, yours is too. And so that's the struggles that we're in these tanks. We think it's to protect ourselves, but there's still a big gun on the front, right? It looks scary to the other person. This is what we tend to do with shields up, and that's scary, and it creates kind of a self-enforcing trap. So look for the health in it rather than the gun in it, right? Look for the health in it. Oh, they're probably just getting into their tank because they feel like they've got to defend. 
Secondly, don't just do something, stand there. And there's a lot of references we could use, like Martha Martha's reaction, you know, in, in Luke 10, where she explodes at Mary and Jesus and is like, tell my sister to help me. And what are you guys doing down there playing checkers? And, and we get reactive. And so when married people are getting into fights, these are emotional events and there's reactivity. And so remember this, don't just do something, stand there. When, you've, when you face reactivity in your life, <coughs> when reactivity is trying to get a grip on you and control you, Follow this rule. Take 20 minutes time out. Neuroscience is now proving, to whatever extent hard science can be proven, but neuroscience is proving this idea that your brain, which has kind of the brain stem, right? And then there's the limbic brain inside, which is the emotional center, all right? Like the amygdala, reptilian fight or flight responses. The cortex wraps around it like this rationality, judgment centers, right? <coughs> when you get really riled up with each other, you literally flip your lid. <laughs> and this takes over and everything's fight or flight. Get into the tank or send off a shell, you know. And, and what they're discovering in neuroscience is that it takes people 20 minutes to get this back. They literally get flooded. Person wrecking, second cracking. And you wind up getting two Yosemite Sams standing in the room together. <laughs> 20 minutes. Honey, I'm going for a prayer walk. I'll be back. Sweetie, let's both go for a prayer walk. You know, whatever you got to do. Take 20 minutes, come back. And uh, my supervisor described it this way. He ever seen dogs with those cones? I can't remember. What do they call them? Lampshades. The poor dogs run around with these cones and they can't scratch themselves. When you get riled up, your perspective goes No wonder you feel like you're looking down the barrel of a gun. It takes 20 minutes and your perspective opens up. 20 minutes later, you'll see a lot of stuff you weren't seeing. Something to think about, okay? Don't just do something, stand there. Or go for a prayer walk. Slow it down. Understand the scheme of Satan that is against you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, let's look there, is a passage that may get some short shrift. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 2 verse 10. We're doing good, people. You guys are doing great work. We're, we're like 15 minutes away. <laughs> Verse 10. If you, if you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now, I've been using this with a lot of married couples. But in this passage, we, we, ought, we uh, will read it and go, that's right. I need to be more aware of Satan. I've not been realizing he's at work. I need to see what he's doing. Amen. Still true. But we, we, we miss the point about the scheme. It's not just be aware of Satan. It's be aware of his schemes. Got any engineers here? Okay. Schemes, schematics, plans, templates. Okay. Satan has schemes to ruin your life. He has schematics on how to thwart the partnership in your marriage. 
And you can chart it if you take enough time. You could probably draw it on paper. And I'll do that for married couples sometimes. I'll go, well, it looks like when you do this, he does this. And when he does this, you feel this. And when you feel this, you do this again. And you guys are caught up in this thing that we call a vicious circle. It's a schematic, okay? And so we want to become aware of Satan's schemes, not just the devil himself. Understand the scheme that is against you. Uh, I'm trying to think of some examples of this. Um, I was working with one couple where they said, well, we've reached an impasse. We're not communicating. So, well, tell me the pattern. Tell me the scheme. And I showed him this scripture. Let's, let's try to chart the scheme. Well, he comes home and I want to talk about stuff because I am a stay-at-home mom. And I'm, by the time he gets home, I'm up to here with problems. So I want to tell someone. And, you know, I am married to him, so I'd like to tell him. And then I start telling him stuff, and he, and he doesn't respond real well. And then he starts to get a little frustrated, and then he goes into another room and sits down. Well, what do you do then? I go into the room, and I keep talking. <laughs> and then what does he do? Well, then he gets really angry and starts fighting him back and telling me this and that. And so we kind of charted out that what was happening for them at an emotional level was, the, was her constantly advancing and him constantly retreating. And, and if we could put it in, in physical terms, he'd have gone into a man cave and then into the sewage system and then, you know. And, and what we said was, you know, when you guys do that, let's, let's talk about this. What's happening is that you, you are really reaching for him and it just scares the heck out of him. And when he backs up out of your reach, that scares the heck out of you. So you reach harder. And so you guys are in this scheme back and forth. So let's talk about what we're afraid of. Let's get down to it. When she's pursuing you like that, what do you feel? What are you really afraid of inside? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> so, so that's when you go, well, I'll bet you know something about it. I'll bet, I'll bet you know how you feel in those, in those moments. I feel really angry. Okay, let's talk about what's inside the anger for you, right? The ang anger is a secondary emotion. It's rarely a primary emotion. Anger is almost always on top of something else, okay? So what is it that, that, that we, we feel deprived of or disrespected of or might not happen for us or that we're afraid of or that we dread? These kinds of things that are deep down. And how do we talk about that so that it becomes visible to her so that she'll stop pursuing you when it scares the heck out of you? And we did the other thing for her, and we were working on this together. Let's get down to those things together, right? Understanding the scheme. More about that. Here's some ways to do that. Try to encourage each other to get away from defending and more to confessing. I don't mean the confession of sin. That's a granted to me in James 5.17. I mean the confession of feeling, the kinds of feelings I just talked about. Psychologists say, and I don't know if this is true, but they say that human beings have four major uh, emotions, and I, I remember them this way, sad, mad, glad, egad. <laughs> Sadness, mad, anger, which is usually secondary. Glad, happy, egad, fear. And the things that are usually informing these fights for us are probably the egad side, the things that we're afraid of, and the sad side. What are the things that really, really make us sad that we don't really want to talk about? And it's, it's causing us to be mad. It's causing us to be discontent. Our spouse is picking that up. They're not hearing it well. They think it's about them. How do we confess instead of just having to defend ourselves to say, you know what? I've got to locate myself emotionally, and I've got to tell you where I am. 
What Lynn and I are finding is we start doing this now, we, we both are pretty high-charged people, and we can get mad really fast. And we, we're starting to practice this more about when I'm really tempted to get mad, to kind of go, i got to locate myself here. i got to show you where I am without it being this demand or this attack on you. Here's what I'm feeling. And it may not be your fault. Maybe it's not your fault at all. Maybe you're a contributing factor. I don't know. But here's where I am. And when we do that, it breaks the scheme of Satan. It breaks it. Move away from defend and more to confess. I, I hope that makes sense. I know there's a lot to be said about that. Invite and understand vulnerability. Invite and understand vulnerability. Lynn and I live in Seattle, Washington, which is wine country. We are not Mormons. Put those two things together and what do you get? We're bibbers. There's wine in the house. Sometimes if I've run out of my favorite red wine, I look in the fridge and there's Kendall Jackson Chardonnay, which my wife bought. And I'll pour myself a glass. Every now and then she said, would you not drink my wine? And I'm like, all I have is yours. She's like, I know that, but I buy these at Costco because I know this one really works for me and you prefer this. And I just, I really would prefer you not drink my wine. We're married. <laughs> Come on. I'll buy you some more. Okay, fine. So we've, we've gone around that dance a few times. One afternoon, I'm home and there's, <laughs> there's a glass of Kendall Jackson Chardonnay on the, on the, uh, the countertop when she walks into the kitchen and goes... I thought we talked about this. I'm like, honey, I, it's okay. I, I'll, I'll, this is just a glass of wine. We've talked about this. <laughs> so my, I got in touch with my inner Yosemite Sam again. And I said, fine, 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 fine. Stormed out of the kitchen, jumped in my car, went down to the mart, bought two bottles of KJ Chardonnay, brought them back to the house, put them on the counter, and said, There you go. Satisfied? And I got to tell you, she, while I was gone, hadn't been 20 minutes, but while I was gone, she had done some of this work. It was so impressive, but I was too proud to see it for about 10 minutes. She, she came in and put her arms on my shoulder and said, thank you for buying those. You didn't have to do that. I realize now why I was in trouble with this. I was like, mm-hmm. She said, you know, since I got cancer in 2006, I have this dreadful feeling that's hard for me to shake that I cannot own things anymore. That's what I figured out. I feel like I can't own anything. So when you kind of do this, then that's one more thing that I don't, it isn't mine. And I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> she was like, it's okay, it's all right. And then she went upstairs. So then 10 minutes later, you know, I calmed down and I thought, she's brilliant. What a spiritual woman and what a therapist. I'm an idiot, you know. And so I went upstairs and said, 
That's incredible. I'm so glad that you figured that out. And that speaks to me. That's a message bigger than words. It's hard for you to own things. I never want you to feel that way. I'm so sorry. And, and the next time I steal some of your Chardonnay, it'll be because I already came in with a bottle. <laughs> and it'll have your name on it. <laughs> Invite and understand their vulner vulnerable side. I think John Louis calls this the child side of life out of Matthew 18. That, you know, unless we become like children... How do we re-get in touch with the vulnerability that we had when we were kids? When we were kids and our parents asked us what was going on and we were seven years old, we didn't have sophisticated words for them. You know, we would say, my feelings were hurt. You know, and we were okay with that as children. And even as adults, we need to get back in touch a little bit with that child's side and be able to say, here's the vulnerable thing for me that I can tell is hard for me. And when we can do that, people can see us well. People can see us well. Okay, there's other things for us to talk about, but I think we're going to stop because I think we should allow for maybe a question or two. Should we? Would that be useful? Do you guys ever do that? Okay. There's other things we can talk about, but I think this is enough. I've, I've thrown a fire hydrant at you here. Attend like a friend. Understand good versus bad apologies. Confess what we want and hunger for without demanding. The end. Yeah, maybe, maybe to take a few questions, and, and if you don't have any, won't hurt my feelings, but if you do, let's, let's talk about those. Um, and if you have a question, you'll kind of stand up and talk loud so we can, we can hear your question. Guys are going, what time's the game? <laughs> okay. Yes. Check, check, check. Ooh, we've got an extra mic. What is a bad apology? Let me check my notes. Here's some things. It's this, this is why I didn't want to get into this. Hold on a second. Let me figure out what's safe to say. Because I don't want to open up cans of worms, right? We can do whole seminars on this. Um, The, let me open with this. The, first of all, there's the hearing of an apology, and, and that can be bad as well, where we hear an apology and then we judge it. Well, you weren't sincere enough. You know, I don't know that you meant that from the heart. Those are judgmental statements that rack apologetic spirits. Okay? Rather than judging an apology, let someone know, I really want to believe you. I know I'm feeling disconnected from you still in some way. I'm not sure what to do about that, but I, I take you at your word. Is there, is there more you could tell me? Is there more you could say? See, it's not demanding and judging, whereas to go, that wasn't sincere. How do you know? <laughs> I mean, we get into these x-ray things where somehow because we're married, we think we have the vision of Christ. How do you know? Did Jesus come whisper in your ear and go, yes, she didn't mean it. 
I think we got to really be humble about that and not be judging apologies and sincerities and take people at their word, right? But then if you need more, tell them. Say, man, I trust you at your word, but I can tell somehow I'm still not connected to you. I'm not sure what more I need, but could you say more, okay? Uh, a good apology versus a bad apology. Do you have your eyes on the us or do you have the eyes on yourself? You can't do both at the same time. Now, I won't say that there isn't a time... Uh, there isn't a time to have eyes on yourself, right? But this would be like saying, I'm really sorry I insulted you, honey. But the reason why I insulted you is because I'm going through such tough times and you did not make time for me. That's a bad apology. Because you've got your eyes on the we and on you at the same time. Okay? You can't have your eyes on both at the same time. Different conversation. Instead, it would be more something like this. I'm really sorry I snapped at you. I would never want to do that. I see how I can contribute to your hurt. I also realize I'm hurting about a lot of stuff too. Uh, and I, need, I want to be able to talk about that at some point. But for now, I realize that's no excuse to ever hurt or insult you. You know, I know you want to be understood. I've got needs too that I want to be understood, but they don't have to be connected here. I'm really sorry I did that. Right, so now you, so you're sort of t saying you're kind of letting someone know there's there's got to be a time to have eyes on me too. I need that, right? But for now, I'm sorry about the us that I wrecked here, and I'm sorry that I hurt you. So the good versus bad apologies is, is pretty simple. It's a little bit about asking yourself, what are my eyes on here? Is, is it is it just on him? Is it just on her? Is it on the we, which is okay, or am I trying to combine those and then somehow talk about what you need to do for me in the same sentence? Does that make sense? That, that kind of wrecks an apology because it confuses the meaning of it. Is that good enough for, for today? It's a lot to work on right there. Okay. Anything else? Why do you talk so fast? <laughs> okay. Oh, one in the back. Okay, we got, two, we got two more, and then we'll call it quits. Two more in the back. No, no, right there. It was the, the sister who was standing in the... Um, a lot of the arguments you're talking about, my husband and I have had similar uh, issues. And then sometimes you get down to the, the fear, like what the fear base of it. Yep. But how do you know once you get there if they still need to work on that fear or you need to change your behavior? Because even when you explain like Lynn's fear of um, the control issue or not owning something, mm -hmm. How do you still know, well, she, she can learn to surrender that versus mm -hmm. you not drinking from her wine? Right. Does that make sense? It does. <laughs> okay. She's speaking to this idea of We've, we've, we've been estranged, we're reconnecting, but, doesn't, but isn't there still individual to be done tomorrow on the things that make us too sensitive to each other, right? It's a great question, and the answer to that is yes. What I do find, though, is that the, the reconnection piece is kind of primary. Do people know how to reconnect first? Do they know how to access this kind of emotion and vulnerability and go, wow, I think I see you better now, and here's what's been going on for me. When people can do that well, 
That's now a, a how-to that they've got in place that'll work for anything. It'll work for any conflict. It'll work for any reconnection piece. But, but you're right that, that does that mean we want to stay where we are today or can tomorrow be a different day where you're less sensitive about that and I'm less sensitive about this? Yes. And a great conversation to be had, different conversation at a different time when we're not fighting about how can we grow and become these different people more in the image of Christ? It's, it's a great question. And I hope, does that help? Is the answer? Okay. And one last question. We had somebody right here in the white shirt. It's four o'clock. You've been a great crowd. <laughs> I couldn't hear that last question, but... Uh, okay, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's a great question. At what point do you just decide, well, I have to eliminate that behavior if it's touching that button, right? Again, maybe back to this first question. We want to know what the buttons are really well. We see those in each other really well. Now we can talk about, is there a compromise? Will, will, you, will you always feel this way? Do you think no matter what, thimble full of Chardonnay, glass full, you know, is this, is this always going to be really big and raw for you? And, and she might say, I don't know. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe I can back off that for a while or maybe sometimes I can ask permission and talk about that. There's alternatives. I usually find that when people are doing this reconnection work, those raw spots really get less raw. That's what's so fascinating about the work. When you can talk about it and process it and reconnect, they get less vulnerable. They get less raw and less reactive. Hope that's, that's useful. Uh, do we have time for one more? Okay, one more, and then Ron's going to come up here and tell you what you really should know at this retreat. Okay. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, uh, well, I don't know because this was in a session, so we're talking about the nature of their fighting, and I'm not, I'm not entirely clear then how, the, how they went on from there to change all that because I can't, I can't remember all the details of that. Some of these are like four or five years ago. But the point was that, that because they could, they could see that scheme, then the next step was what we went over, which was now how do I locate my vulnerable self? How do I locate myself instead of just chasing you in anger? So her work was instead of kind of this aggression and i got to tell you everything, and you got to listen, she could just say, let me just kind of tell you where I am. And I know you're beat, and I know you're tired. I want to locate myself kind of where I am with this. You don't have to fix me. You don't have to solve it. Uh, it's okay. But I just want you to know where I am. And that, that changed the meaning of the dialogue, right? That changed it. Instead of it being this thing where he had to do something about it and fix it all, and he was to blame, and it was all his fault, she disconnected all that. So she was able to learn how to just disconnect the blame and the causation and just say, here's just where I am. And then he was able to locate himself in session and out to start saying, I realize when you've got stuff, I feel like I'm supposed to fix it and solve it. I have no idea how to do it. And I feel like a failure as a husband because I'm supposed to be able to help you. And yet I feel so helpless. And that was able to change it for them. Okay. Small steps, folks. I know I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you here. Some recommendations of books for further reading. Please Understand Me by David Kiersey. Hold Me Tight 
by Sue Johnson, Hold Me Tight. Fantastic book, Hold Me Tight by Sue Johnson, The Road Less Traveled, M. Scott Peck. Love you guys. God bless. See you tomorrow.